Hey, hey, this is your Great Legs dude, Jeff Liske, coming to you on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we're going to be going rage angler on all things Great Lakes, from gear, fly, big water, and swinging flies, of course. If it concerns the Great Lakes, we've got you covered, so stay tuned to this next episode. Here we go. Our main man, Jeff Liske, is back on the podcast, and he is going to continue on the deep dive into all things Great Lakes. Today's episode is an extra special episode because we have Jeff's first interview on the podcast. Let's listen in and find out who is Jeff's special Great Lakes guest this week. As always, you can connect with Jeff or I anytime. Let us know if you're loving the podcast and it's an open door if you have any questions focused on the Great Lakes. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro nymphing reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate and you can hold your dead drifts longer without shoulder burn. Check out Maverick Fly Fishing Stinger and their other Euronymph products and support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash maverick right now. That's maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash maverick. Check out the lightest and most unique Euronymphing reel right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake, and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Let's get into it with our Great Lakes guru, the dude, Jeff Liske. Hey, hey, everyone. This is Jeff Liske, Great Lakes dude here. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Great Lakes podcast. I'm super stoked to start diving into chatting with some of the Great Lakes anglers. You know, some are pros, some are not. Some are just downright fishy anglers. Today's episode, I'm going to be chatting with one of the best shallow water fly anglers around. You know, we connected because of our love of the freshwater drum. We think it's a way cool fish that eats chicken feathers. But interestingly enough that there's a lot of people that call them trash fish, sadly to say. That being said, I'd like you to welcome Dave Hurley to our show. Dave is a skinny water specialist that runs Skinny Water Safari Guide Service. Dave roams the backwaters of the Great Lakes based on the lower peninsula of Michigan, where he pulls his way through the miles of skinny water flats, sight fishing for a wide variety of warm water species out of his towy boat. Welcome Dave to the show. Jeff, thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Way, way cool, man, Dave. Uh, greatly appreciate you coming on and uh, can't wait to start picking your brain. You know, before we dive into some fishy talk, you know, why don't you give us a little background and update on how you ended up in the Great Lakes and started chasing fish around this area, man? Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm a transplant from California, born and raised, grew up in Cali fishing since I can remember. I mean, my dad took me fishing as early as I can remember. Um, and, uh, always been really into water and fish and our big water out there is the Pacific ocean. Uh, so I grew up fishing inland lakes in in California for all kinds of stuff, bass, trout, and then the, the, the surf in the ocean. 
and uh, also charter trips into the ocean stuff in the Pacific. But, you know, eventually found fly fishing and uh, and kind of discovered a small community of people that uh, that fly fished in the surf along the Pacific for uh, croaker species, corbina, um, which corbina is probably the most popular fish, barge surf perch. And uh, and my little niche, uh, as I kind of got into it and kind of went deep, um, was the spot fin croaker, which is a, it's not you don't hear about it as much it's a it's kind of a more rare catch um they're more southern pacific coast down into baja and there there's yellowfin croaker that run the surf and spotfin croaker and corbina and they're all related they all kind of look similar more like a redfish smaller they don't get huge kind of uh, a little bit longer slender the corbina especially is more uh, slender and long if you haven't seen one they're kind of silver they call them the ghost of the coast um, but you can sight fish for these fish in uh, in skinny water, and they kind of they they're designed to ride the waves in along the sand, and uh, and it's clear, it's clear water. There's foam and waves and stuff like this, but you find the right beach stretch and the incoming tide, and you can sight fish to them, and they're they're super challenging. I mean, you have to they're. You have to throw a lot of skill at them. And even then, the most competent anglers, um, you know, will scratch their heads most days and uh, and come out in empty-handed. And there's a, lot, a handful of guys that get it done very consistently with Corbina. But Spotfin Croaker are taking that to a whole nother level. of it's, it's such a, you know, badge of honor to catch one of those fish. And I became obsessed with them. I just happened to, some of the water that I fished had uh, populations of them during certain times of year. And uh, I, being the kind of right brain creative that I am, um, just figured out some flies. I think the the revelation for that was for a fly that I had sort of made up or come up with for the spot bin croaker specifically was uh, after I had thrown the whole kitchen sink at a pod of them, I put on a little stone fly nymph. Uh, and I just happened to have one in my little, I had a chest pouch, the dorky, like, you know, one that opens up. <laughs> and I, and I caught the biggest uh, spot fin in the pack and it just sparked this whole thing. I started tying my own little like nymph flies with uh, tungsten bead heads, real small, smaller than anything you would ever prior that I would ever throw or any of the people that I fished would, would ever throw for, for Corbina. And, uh, it, and I started catching them more consistently and turning other people on and, and you have buddies that still catch them to this day. Fast forward, I met my my wife, my future wife, uh, who is from Michigan, and uh, was ready for a change. We uh, we saved up a little nest egg, and we knew we didn't want to live in California for the rest of our lives. And while I was with her um, prior to getting married, we uh, we had visited the Great Lakes in Michigan, and uh, that's where her family is. And I kind of really started enjoying it out here. I mean, every time we'd come, we'd we'd camp and, and go explore and. And uh, I, I really like Detroit, to be honest. I thought it was a, an interesting city. And uh, so we decided to move. And, uh, and, and I ended up out here. And uh, lo and behold, found the freshwater drum. Um, the first one I ever saw, I was actually, uh, I had gotten off work and I grabbed my, I had a rod. I worked kind of uh, nearby Lake St. Clair. And uh, I found this canal. And I was walking the canal looking for bass. And 
I thought I was hallucinating, man. I was looking down at the spot fin croaker. Like it, it, it freaked me out. Um, and I casted to it and I stripped and it ate the fly and I caught it. And I was like, I took a thousand pictures of it. I posted all this stuff and I had forgotten that I'd heard about what they were. I knew what they, what it was, but I didn't know it would look so much like a freshwater drum. And I uh, went back to, uh, to Jerry, uh, Darkus's book, um, uh, Inland Oceans. And, uh, you know, he'd written about them and I had read that book. So I just kind of, I thought, okay, this is amazing. Like I, I am just beside myself that there's this fish. And I didn't know at the time that pe- no, nobody was into this fish. Everybody hated it. I did not know that. I, I was completely like, I had found something that I was intent on pursuing and, uh, and just a continuation of, you know, me in California. And it just, clicked with me that you could probably catch them on a flat uh, sight fishing, you know, and that's what I was used to to doing anyways for, for its cousin, you know, the saltwater cousins. And um, so, yeah, man, long story short, I, you know, I sold a few things and I, I, I bought a, a little, a little tiny John boat that was made out of fiberglass and uh, had a, a buddy build this beautiful cedar, polling platform. This is part of, I've never pulled anything in my life. I've never owned a boat in my life. <laughs> he built this amazing platform. It was gorgeous. And this boat was tiny. It was such a, a I mean, it was the wrong boat to build a platform like this on, but I didn't know any better. And uh, it had a little deck. It was probably a 12 foot John. Um, and it was made out of fiberglass, really light, um, had like, the gunnels were probably, I mean, not even a foot off the water. And, uh, I strapped a Yeti to the front. I strapped a, um, uh, well, I had the platform built and then I had a, um, uh, a window cleaner extension that I bought at uh, Home Depot um, <laughs> that I used as a push bowl for like year, for about a year. And we just went out and tried to do it. And uh, we ended up doing it. We ended up fishing and catching fish. And I remember telling buddies like, Hey man, like they're you know, like, let's go fish the river for smallies. And like, hey, actually, you want to go try to fish for drum? Like, and and everyone kind of like, sure, I guess it sounds interesting, you know. And they come out, and and I would see them light up. Like, this is amazing. Like, wow. I I and slowly but surely, kind of um, uh, over the years, and, and I, I got my towy boat, which was uh, the best thing. I best. I mean, I just love my boat so much. It's it's been incredible for me. And that was my next, you know, venture into kind of stepping up my game. And, uh, and over the years I, I got a legit pull and, uh, learned technique and approach and kind of dialed it in. And it really comes, it, I, I don't know, man, it just, uh, it, it, we can expand on that, but it, it getting back to the drum, that initial, uh, excitement over that fish came purely from, from my saltwater experience in California. That's how I kind of got there man that's a that's pretty cool you know it's it's just like you said dave it's like so many people when you say hey let's go throw a fly for drum they look at you and they're like really but then once you get them on the boat or get them someplace and they finally like experience it they're like this is the best thing ever right it's like right it's like crazy it's like okay let's then like well when can we do this again so, and that's how we connected uh-huh. was the drum and, but, you know, both myself and, you know, you, we both are like this explorer cutting edge. It's like, 
I find my best days where I don't even like catch fish. Right. Cause you learn more, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So besides the drum, you know, the great lakes, you chase them up and down all along the shoreline and Lake Michigan and Huron and all over get paint us a little picture, a little short picture of like what a normal day would be like when you go out fishing and if it's just for drum or whatever, but just like a normal little day that what you can expect when you go out skinny water fishing. Ah, uh, yeah. So, uh, it's hard to sum up, man. It, the, I think one of the, the really interesting things, and in and it's challenging. It's fun. It's uh, it's nonstop. Um, it, we are we cover a lot of water, and it's one of these weird things where it's very easy to go out with on my boat and for a whole day and not want to drink or eat because you're just in the moment it's a pure existentialism you're 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 just looking at that water and you see how uh things just emerge like things just happen you're looking in this aquarium and it's it's the great lakes it, it doesn't matter where you are on the great lakes there's a part of the great lakes just about everywhere in the coastline that has this element and all of it's different but that's the beauty of it right there's so many miles of unexplored places. I have water that I know like the back of my hand. So we are just moving into these territories and these, these zones where you could have, you know, a a habitat that you're kind of pushing into that has carp. And all of a sudden you're fishing to these carp, but at the same time on the periphery of that, there's a pod of bass that are moving in. So you're, as an angler, you're in this mode of thinking or as a beginner angler even you're learning how to fish to a carp and then all of a sudden you have me at the back of the boat yelling pick up your fly cast it 15 feet to your left or you know you're three o'clock or nine o'clock sorry and uh and basically um strip it as fast as you can and so at the same time you have to switch in your in your head so quickly to get this uh this bass that's only there for a split second. It's curious. It's coming in, you know, and, uh, and it's just constantly that stuff's always happening. There's always something new as somebody's fishing to uh, a bowfin. I have in my eye a carp that's in the distance. that's nose down. So I'm kind of like, all right, if that doesn't work out, we're going to bank right and go hit this carp, you know? And, and it's just, I mean, it, it is just, it's just a conveyor belt of these uh, scenarios and each one's different. You approach each one differently. Each fish is different. Um, the spectrum of fish that we fish to it's, it's grown over the years, but the, uh, the bowfin is kind of the most forgiving, although they're super fun. You can get right up on them. You have a lot of time to approach them, to plan out your, your approach. They oftentimes just play ball. And uh, even if you hook them a couple times, even they will bite a third, fourth time. They're still looking for that meal after they've been hooked. Um, whereas uh, carp, obviously, you have a very short window, you know, to get that done as a getting within proximity of that carp. If that carp's in in vegetation that you can't really cast to, we have to get to a vertical situation. So we're we're getting in position, moving really slowly, and you get sort of one shot at these carp, and it has to be just right. And uh, you get rewarded from that, but um, it's more difficult. Drum are also very difficult at times, uh, and every drum's different. Every drum has a different little little attitude, or is in a different mood, and 
you learn the body language of the of these fish and you know which ones are going to play and how they're going to play and you're constantly breaking it down you're constantly making decisions and hopefully they're the right ones um but it's okay if it's not because again we're just moving another 40 feet and we're we have another opportunity it's it's really fun it's something else yeah i you know it sounds a little silly but i'm the same way as you go through these little ecosystems thank goodness for rod socks because you got them all rigged up and you're like there's a bass right so you you grab this other rod that has another fly on it and you're Uh this in this total state of chaos like you said but you it's sort of like a planned chaos in a way, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it is a planned chaos. And I do have flies that work for everything. So I have one fly that'll work for everything. Um, we try to we try to really kind of narrow that down. I have expanded. I, I bring typically now uh, five rods. And that's just the most recent addition was a muskie rod because we have actually now, uh, I can say, have caught a muskie on the flats um sight fish and that came that that was probably one of the most uh epic days that i've ever had uh, on the flats and that was luckily with um a, my best friend who came out from california and um he's a really good angler so uh he's he's just like me we're we're two peas in a pod just you know we go real hard but uh the first fish of the day was uh about a you know i'd say a 15 to 20 pound carp the second fish of the morning was, you know, a high 40s muskie. We didn't have a tape measure in the boat, but it was a muskie. <laughs> oh my Third gosh. fish was a was a, a bowfin. Fourth fish was a really nice molly. And then it just kind of, the day just progressed from there. It was just, you know, sun up to sundown, just nonstop. That's like the, the grand slam of all grand slams of the, la- of like oh, the Great I'm, Lakes, I'm right? Unbelievable. Yeah, it was unreal. I, I put a re- little little reel on my Instagram of that day and uh, shot the video of him. He actually hooked that muskie and uh, the hook slipped. The muskie swam about 10 feet and then just laid down again. And we were able to position ourselves to where he could take that fly and just bring it right by its face again. And it chomped the fly right again, like within minutes. Um, and he was able to catch it and reel it in and, and or get it to the net. So that was that was amazing. Um, so yeah, we 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 now we have a musky uh, rod rigged up, ready to go on the on the towie, on the flats. And uh, that's not the only musky I've seen. I've seen several, and the most the majority of them I didn't have a musky rod. So now I will always have one. Yeah, but what's yeah, a, we have. What's your go-to? Like seven weights, eight weights? Um, so my I love fishing a six weight. I'm privy to uh, a six weight. Um, uh, seven weights are nice too. There are days where I'll have a, you know, seven weight with a, like a popper for, for bass. We get into some scenarios where I know there's a bath and it's just really nice because we have these resident flats bass um, in, in different areas too. You come across, you're just seeing them, you know, and you're like, oh, these bass are just hanging out in, in this area. So let's just throw a popper to them and have fun, have that option. So that's nice. Um, and so I'll throw that on a seven weight, but um, my go-to for, for drum, for bowfin, I would get a little, little sketched out with some of the big carp with a, with a six weight, but uh, I reeled in some 20 pounders with, you know, fought 20 pounders with my six weight. Um, you just have to kind of finesse them. But yeah, for right now, the carp have been my most recent real focus. 
And I've gone up to a 10 weight for them uh, just because of the vegetation, especially when we start getting into the July, the, the landscape just constantly changes as the summer progress progresses. And these carp uh, along the shoreline have way more vegetation to run into in July than they do in, uh, in uh, late June. So um, we kind of have to step up our, uh, our heavy gear to, to button down on them and get them out of that stuff. What's on the working end, Dave, like from your leader down to your tippet, like, I'm sure you have some I'll go stealth, stealthy rig, but what's the like, okay. No, I'll, I'll go up to uh, 15 on a carp. Um, but typically my go-to is 12. And if they're okay. being really spooky, I'll do 10. But yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff for them to run through. So uh, anything less than that is, is, you know, <laughs> not real, not realistic. I know some diehards that, you know, only fish eight pound tests for carp and, um, and kudos to them, but you know, out there on the, the flats, it's, it's a little different. You stretching out the dog leash, like leader length over nine feet to like for stealth, or what are you doing for like leader length? There's a interesting sort of, uh, zone that I like to stay within. And that's about seven to nine, uh, because for, especially even for carp, there are lots of scenarios where we're casting to them, but when we're casting to them, they are the happiest carp you've ever seen. They are nose down. They're doing like headstands and eating. When we're fishing to kind of more settled carp that aren't or are in between, a lot of times they're in like structure. They're in like a, a, a grouping of lily pads around some sort of uh, reeds. Um, and so we can get pretty close to them. We can actually scoot the boat in real slow. And it's, it, it's a, it's a technique, a polling technique that, that I applied to where I really, really just, I, I'm, I'm every time that pole reaches the end, I'm pulling it completely out of the water. I'm adjusting it in my hand. I'm not, it's not dragging through anything that I'm gently, you know, gingerly setting it back down. I'm getting right in there and then we're kind of just parking the, the boat and just inching it over to where the person on the bow the angler on the bow can reach and get that full distance with that nine foot rod and go vertical on that fish and just drop it down and that's how we can coax some of those uh carp that are not really um that are kind of more curious or more investigative they're not actually eating to eat and you you just i mean again sometimes in that scenario, it takes a different fly to get it done. But the fly we use for drum and bass and bowfin in all colors, mind you, I've, I've fished fluorescent yellow flies to carp and they've moved four feet on it and eat it, eaten it. Um, big, you know, kind of articulated little bottom goby flies. So if they're, if they're in the right mood, they will, they will uber up just about anything with the right approach. We use a lot of drag and drop. So um, it, it does help to have that nine foot leader. And if you're dragging and dropping the fly, oftentimes again, the fish is downward oriented. So I'm not too concerned with the, the line hitting the water over the fish, um, the fly line. But in those scenarios, it would be nicer to have a longer leader um, because you can not worry about that uh, as at all. But um, it doesn't really lend itself to the versatility, the versatility of the fishery because having that super long leader will it hinder a lot of other scenarios. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you can, with me with the electric bow mount, mm -hmm. I can't 
stealthily get him onto them. So you can position yourself and work your way in where I sort of have yes. to sit, stake out. And I sort of just wait until they move to me or I have to really be patient. And it's really hard for clients to carp fish with a boat with an electric motor because we mm -hmm. have to be way more patient than you stealthily pulling onto it. So there's a huge advantage. But also, doing, you know, also very effective though. You know, I've done that. Uh, and, and that does pay off uh, when you just, you know, just stay there and you see their line, you can sometimes see the way they're moving around, you know, and just hang on, like they will come. But even then, uh, the water that we fish, um, for the most part, uh, uh, well, it actually, no, I fish different water. I, I, there's, there's places where I fish where the water is very murky and, uh, and it's shallow enough or skinny enough that you can still see the carp and you can make out just about everything on that carp, even though it's muddy water. And that allows you to get close and, and still, well, I actually allows you to stake out and have the carp come and feed right next to you. Whereas in the clear, clear water, for some reason, they are more oriented to using their eyeballs. And so they will eventually see your presence. It is, if you're still as can be, they will still look up and see the shadow of the bow. It doesn't look natural to them. Um, even if it's a little bit of like wind blowing that, stuff hitting the side of the boat, you know, uh, as, as much as you don't think it makes a difference sometimes when they're getting close to you, they're not going to just settle down there. You know, you got a little bit of a window, but yeah, so it's, it's challenging, but I, I prefer to move. It, it does keep everybody, uh, you know, happy and, uh, <laughs> keeps my mind going. Yeah. Engaging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fly fishing is always in full swing at drift hook. Let Drifthook Fly Fishing outfit you with the perfect assortment of flies to prepare for your next adventure. Everything from nips to dry flies, hoppers to streamers and their Euronip fly kits are pre-packed in a double-sided water-resistant fly box. These kits ship free directly to your door, ready to start catching some fish. If you're starting out or just looking for additional tips to help you catch more fish, Drifthook.com has over 50 instructional videos and over 200 articles to help you improve your fly fishing game. And I want to reiterate this fact right here that Drifthook has a great resource at the website. Matt has put together some awesome blog posts. And these aren't just flabby blog posts. They are packed with lots of great content to help you on your next adventure wherever it takes you this year. With over 150 verified five-star reviews and a 30-day money-back guarantee, Drifthook's family-owned business has you covered. You can order right now at drifthook.com and use the code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your first order. That's Drifthook, D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K, drifthook.com, and you swing, S-W-I-N-G, at checkout to get 15% off your first order. You support this podcast in a great small company right now by checking out that link at Drifthook. Okay, so let's, um, let's talk a little bit about water, you know, water temperatures and fish species. This year has been extremely challenging for myself. This has mm -hmm. been, you know, normally we should be skyrocketing over 70 degrees by end of June. In a lot of my home waters, I'm still under 70. And I know it's affected my, you know, presentations. It's affected the way I've been guiding. But in general, opposite this year, what would be like water temps that you're looking for, Dave, you know, to really start things off? And, you know, what's the key there, maybe? You know what? It's funny. I don't really even pay attention to water temps. We're, we're sight fishing. The fish are either there or they're not. 
And, uh, and honestly, I know from my experiences that I can, you know, early, early spring. So in May, when we're fishing for bass, I know that there's bowfin and I know where they are. And, uh, and I, I see them occasionally in random places, but those are flats fish we can go pull to. Uh, we can take a break from, from fishing to pre-spawn bass and go on, on different flats that, uh, that warm up obviously faster than the rest of the lake. But I know kind of in when the temps are good enough for smallmouth bass to, to stage for pre-spawn, I know that there's both in on, on flats. And so, and occasionally you'll find early carp there too. Those carp, I have not caught them yet. They're, they're hard to catch, but um, no drum. Uh, drum don't really come until mid June. And I don't, I don't, again, I'm not, I don't, not one of those data collectors with, with water temperature, my data collection and, and also barometric pressure and moon phases and things like things like that. I love that for musky. I do, um, I do know that it does affect, uh, especially drum, the barometric pressure changes. Um, absolutely does. There's days where they just are shut. Their mouths are just locked shut. There's days where they're feeding voraciously. And I think that has a lot to do with the change of the barometric pressures. Uh, temperature wise though, um, it's just not something I factor into my days because we are just, we're looking for fish and we, you know, we find them and we fish to them. And uh, the months that I really do it, I know that they're there and I've consistently seen them in different stretches, different parts of the, of the, of the Great Lakes all up and down uh, Michigan. Okay, because do you find it like if the water, like you have a cold morning, like I find like a cold morning in early season, I will stay mm -hmm. off the flats. And then as mm -hmm. that water starts to spike and the sun gets it, those fish will actually come up on the flats to feed mm -hmm. where normally in the morning I could visit that flat. It's like, nope, it's like a, it's like nobody home, ghost town. Absolutely. Yes, okay. no, that's, that's true. That's, but that's just the general progression of the day. Uh, right. I'm not thinking of any, I'm not testing the water temperature or anything like that and using that data to affect the way I fish. But absolutely, I know for sure that certain places warm up faster than others. That's that's something that I do consider. And uh, as, as the temperatures progress, which flats will kind of be the last ones to, to fill in. And, uh, and then I, there's obviously, it's been a challenging uh, beginning for sure for me too in that some of the flats uh, this last uh, weekend, I was very surprised that there wasn't uh, more drum. However, we did find a lot of both in, so that was okay. Right. So interesting, I was out in the same area that you were, not in the skinnies, but mm -hmm. the water temperature dropped below 70 um, mm -hmm. because of the cold nights, and the drum mm -hmm. fishing was fairly slow. So usually, if I can get it to go 70 to 73, the drum mm -hmm. bites on. So yeah. that would make sense because we struggled yeah. with drum until the afternoon. But do we chat a little bit about water clarity and you're looking for some that has mystery water, you approach that different, some is vodka clear, which most of the time it is, mm -hmm. but maybe is there a time that you choose one over the other, or is it just like, uh, as you're working through the ecosystem, you take advantage of what, what mother nature gives you for the day? Yeah. Uh, it's, um, there's a lot of this taking what mother nature gives us. Um, and, and that's, that's a big part of it. There's always, again, even with the murky situation versus clear water, um, we had, uh, this last weekend, we had a couple 
giant pods of carp that were feeding and they murkied up the, the water to where it was zero visibility in a certain area. And we knew that's when you start seeing that milky water, you're pulling along and the water's getting milky. And you, you look off in the distance, you see that opaque water that just looks like chocolate milk. You're like, <laughs> that's where the pot of carp, carp are feeding. And in that pot of carp, you have drum that also associate with the carp. Um, and so what we do is then we, we pull over there really slowly, not to scare anybody. And we work the periphery of that. We work where the, where the muddy water meets the clear water. Cause we obviously, you can't find Italian carp in chocolate milk. It needs to be somewhat dissipated <laughs> a little bit. Um, so then you find those carp that kind of scoot onto the outskirts and you get shots at them there. And then also we'll, we'll see drum and sometimes we'll just strip a fly through the cloud and kind of strip it in or tick it in in a way, or sometimes I'll put even rattles in the fly just to help them find it. I have flies with rattles. And uh, sometimes you'll hook up to a drum like that. You won't ever hook up to a carp doing that, but um, you know, the drum are get in there thick. They kind of all associate with each other when they're feeding that vor voraciously, usually on the shoulders of, uh, of uh, spring and uh, fall is when you see those pods. And um, as the flats heat up, they kind of break away and, and, and feed a little bit more in smaller groups where you can fish to them a little easier. However, carp from a towy, carp from a boat pulling um, was something that I, I actually struggled with for many years. And uh, one of the, Luke Anner has a, a, a guide service out of, um, I believe it's uh, Wisconsin. I'm not sure exactly, um, but he's a, a, another angler that's really into carp and he guides carp out of, out of a toy boat. I heard him on a podcast and he talked about his water and how a lot of his fish, they go vertical, kind of dap for them in water that's not so clear. And uh, it got, it sparked my interest and in to, to find water purposely that was skinny and not so clear. And so I found flats, um, along Lake Erie, up in Saginaw Bay, up along Lake Huron, and flats that are just different, um, that, that have more uh, of a murky water that I can um, use that approach. And I've found that it does really help to have that murk in the water to, to really get up vertical on these, on these spooky fish. And, and that's, you know, when you're purposely targeting carp, that's that's kind of how I utilize that. Um, not so much for for other fish. Today's episode is sponsored by Tokens Fly Shop. Tokens Fly Shop provides superior quality products at a great price. They have also a great YouTube channel that you can check out right now with uh, new fly tying tutorials each week. Tokens also has you covered if you're looking for unique in-house products, and they also support. Uh, many, many of the great brands out there that you know and trust. It's been fun connecting with Justin, the family, uh, over the years now, and it's it's been really cool, great local fly shop. Togans is also offering their fly tying box where they send out materials at a regular cadence where you don't even have to think of it. You just open the mailbox and there's your Togans pack. And I recently made an order through Togans and the experience is always perfect. They've got you covered if you have, ever have questions or need any help, whether that's a YouTube tutorial or connecting with them uh, personally. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on customer service, and it's time for you to check out uh, Togans Buzz for yourself. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans right now to check out their diverse selection of products today. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. That's Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. Okay, back to the show. 
So let's chat a little bit about their awareness zone. Like, so, you know, if you're a saltwater guide and I always get yelled at by the guide, like put it on their nose, put it in this four foot circle. Right. And we talked a little bit about you going vertical, but do you ever get to the point where you make a long cast or is that something that you feel is not really controllable? That's not effective all the time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, your short game is just as important as your long game. So uh, there, I mean, the majority of the bowfin are caught in a very short game. You, you it's uh, that, and that can be really cha- challenging. But we we had plenty of bowfin this weekend that were casted to forty foot casts, and bowfin will just come out of nowhere into open water, and you put a cast on, you strip in, you watch it chase down your fly, and that's epic. I love that. I mean, it's really nice to see, but bass smallmouth bass when you're on the flats these are spooky bass but they're also curious and they come in fast and uh as soon as you see them and it's not so much uh, the most important thing i think for anglers and the most the most effective way to to take advantage of that is to be able to load a rod fast to be able to just one haul it and shoot your line you know 60 feet that's that's the pinnacle right we want to get there because that's that's going to really be effective um, in those scenarios. And we're doing that all day long. We're casting to fish. We're casting to drum. We're setting up on drum and setting up on carp that are out in the open. And, you know, I will take that angler and I'll, I'll you know, I'll look at their cast and I'll know this is what they can do comfortably and accurately. And I'll try to maximize the distance to where they can get it done. And if that angler has a, an 80 foot accurate cast, all the better. So we'll play that game based on, based on the skill level and, and, uh, and try to improve also, uh, as we go along. Well, that's awesome. That's sort of the same game I play, you know, evaluating skill set, and you just hone mm-hmm. the day in as you go, but we should probably back up and touch two bullet points. Like how shallow of a water we fish? Cause we talked about skinny water. So yeah. it's obvious that it went muddy, but let's just say, you know, depth wise, what are you, what are you talking? Like, where are you fishing? We forgot to say that. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I will be in, uh, anywhere from, uh, six inches to, um, it's about five feet. Typically it's somewhere in between that three feet is where we like to stay, but the landscape's constantly changing. And a lot of times those, those changing landscapes, are what we look for. We look for anything that's like a, a dredged out channel, any sort of drop off, any sort of shelf within a flat um, that's a structure. All the Great Lakes, the beautiful thing about the Great Lake shoreline is the Great Lakes are flowing. They're moving, there's tributaries, there's uh, there's inlets, there's, um, and that's that's something that's fun also to, to pull along and to discover because those are little bottlenecks where life um, tends to, tends to flourish a little bit better, but having those depth changes is something that we, we stick close to. And I find that a lot of times the bigger fish do come from, from those depth changes, especially in the earlier months and through June and into early July. And then they, the fish kind of get a little bit more settled on the flats into, uh, into July and August. Um, and, uh, and we're, we're fishing more consistently, more skinny water. Okay. That's awesome. And what, so you said the 60 foot one back cast, let it go shooting head. Is there a line, like a go-to line that you're using for this that you could recommend? Yeah. My favorite so far is, um, uh, SA bass. 
the bass okay. uh, bass bug. That's been um, be, because uh, again we haven't gotten to fly design yet, but um, the sink rate of the fly is really important. That fly can't just hover down; like it needs to get down to the bottom fairly quickly because wow. the window is so short for the fish that's oriented at the bottom. And you know we're this boat and we're approaching the fish on a flat; it's clear water. It's going to see us eventually. Um, and you can almost start a time clock. And I know, like, you've got 10 seconds to, like, get this done. And so you have to make the cast. The fly has to get in the zone. And as you're playing the fish, you have to get that fish interested in the fly. And drum on the flats are different than drum uh, in the main lake. They tend to have, we fish to drum that are virtually blind sometimes. Um, that have cataracts on their eyes or drums that drum that are, you know, highly aware and very spooky um, and drum that'll act like a bass and run down a fly. But every drum's a little different, but the key is to get that fly down in their zone on the bottom, tick it across the bottom in a way that they see it. And once they see that fly and they turn on it and they're, they're, they're engaged, the, there's a sigh of relief on the boat. And so that getting to that zone is so important with the sink rate. And so we need a fly line that's going to turn over a fly that's going to have that weight to it. And, uh, and some of the bonefish lines and stuff like that are great because they land so soft on the water, but they're not so good for casting, um, you know, these bigger flies. And the, the saltwater bead chain eye flies, are, they're perfect for that, but those don't work so well in, uh, in our scenarios. That's great info because that's the, probably the widest question I get asked. Like people have like one line and I really say you really can't have just one line unless you know exactly what you're doing and you're a mm -hmm. specialist and you've already narrowed it down. But let's let's dive into you talked about these weighted flies. Maybe you could just cover. I have what I call my guide program is I have one control fly. Like you said, I have a fly that I know that catches everything. Mm -hmm. I have one client that always has that on. And mm -hmm. then I have the then I have the crash test dummy, which means mm -hmm. that. The crash mm -hmm. test dummy, if you're in that wheelhouse, I'm going to start opening up the box and just start putting on some random stuff because you never yeah. know, right? But sometimes it's not good to be the crash test dummy. But um, right. maybe you can, it's, it is going to be great, <laughs> especially right. when fishing sucks, right? But why don't, you, <laughs> why don't you just touch base? You don't got to give away any secret flies, but maybe just give the listeners a couple little intels where you want to start. Cause you are a badass fly tire too. So. Oh, thanks man. Dude. I, 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 I don't think I'm going to say this with pretty good confidence. I've probably tied the same fly a handful of times in a row. I, I, every fly I tie is different. Every fly I tie, I have to add something to it. And I don't know. I just, it, it's, I love the creation of, of flies. I love, I'm constantly having ideas. And so that said, I, I have flies that work and I, and, I, and I tie those flies consistently. And the difference between each one might be a color or the color of the rubber legs or some little sort of dubbing that I add as a different little flare or some sort of little tweak that I do that, that no one would really notice. However, it's just something in me that like, it's just really difficult to tie a batch of this same fly. And I've never really sold flies. I've never tied for production. It's all for my own fun. And I put a lot into the flies that I tie. And yeah, sometimes it hurts when they get lost. 
Um, but uh, whatever, it's cool. I, I, I just, it's just how I've always done it. I've always put a lot into my flies. I've always, you know, really, you know, the, the whole guide fly thing, I'm starting to get that a little bit more and, and it doesn't really matter, but I just, I still have a hard time. I still have to make my flies look amazing to me. Um, and I'm only satisfied if that's, if, if that's the case. Now the design, and that's what you're asking me, the design of my flies. Um, yeah, the like crate, it's basically medium, uh, bead, uh, medium, uh, medium size. The larges are usually too big. I just got these fulling mill, um, they're medium size lead eyes, but they're made out of tungsten. So they look like the traditional lead eyes, but they're a little heavier. And we did trial that out. Um, the plop is a big factor with flies. Um, so uh, if you if you can tell me a fly that's that's heavy and sinks really fast, that doesn't have a plop, I'm all ears. But that's going to be a thing that happens when you when you have a heavy fly that that stinks. Is you're going to have a fly that makes a loud noise when it splashes on the water, and so. The fly that I've come to really fish consistently has a shank in the front. And I'm not good with the millimeters of the shank. My dyslexic brain uh, has a hard time remembering all my specific measurements of hook sizes and stuff like that. But um, it's relatively small. And uh, and then a relatively small hook off the back that's, you know, um, I've been into the A-Rex minnow hook uh, lately. I found that's a, a nice sturdy hook. Size, let's say, four. And then a medium dumbbell eye. And on that fly, I like to mix synthetics. I like synthetics because they um, they sink fast, and they um, they don't really hold water. Um, they don't get waterlogged. And so I will use everything from a dubbing loop to um, certain uh, chenille materials. I work in some flash. I like to work in rubber legs because I know the drum uh, feed by feel too. Um, so they uh, they have highly sensitive mouths, and so just something that can kind of tickle that fish. As and they will, they'll put their face right on the fly. Like they won't eat it, but they will actually follow it and put their chin on it. And these are drum that are sometimes visually challenged, and uh, it in that fly has to kind of vibrate just right. Uh, for it to to make the decision to to inhale it, and so with that in mind, the shank and the hook, the reason for that is you have this sort of business in the back. You have this hook in the back, and that hook is is loose. Uh, it it moves, and so the eye, the dumbbell eyes are attached to the shank, and you have this hook in the back. And for me, what that helps with is that hook kind of tends to find the mouth a little bit better. Um, and, and these fish will also eat and spit very, uh, very quickly. And so for reflexes and stuff like that, it just kind of ups the the hookup rate. And that's a design that I've come up with. I've called it the Flats Jordan because uh, I did a series of them that I copied the colors of actual uh, Michael Jordan shoes, <laughs> Air Jordan <laughs> shoes. Yeah. And uh, and I called it the Flats Jordan. It kind of looked like the shoe, you know, and, and the, those fish all caught drum. It was kind of fun. Um, so that was the name of the, you know, like the Air Jordan, the Flats Jordan, but that's been a, a design that I've kind of stuck with. And that's also really spe- specifically helped with Bofin too, because Bofin have such hard palates. Um, uh, sometimes that, that, that hook that's able to kind of be a free agent can find the, the softer areas of the mouth a little easier. And again, I've 
fished that fly for a while. It seems to be seems to work with me. Uh, I fish with plenty of guys that tie their own flies that get it done just as well. So I'm not sure exactly if it's if it's a thing, but for me, it it it, it seems to be. Um, so I'm sticking with it. Yeah, that's some great intel. I'm I'm, I'm all for rubber. Like my go-to mm-hmm. flies always have some rubber in it. Or my best. Oh, I love rubber. Yep. And then the cool thing you said about tungsten eyes, not only does it, you know, sink fast. And I was up at, you know, Mike Schultz shop and he was like, I was like, dude, what about the, you know, he, he pointed me to those tungsten eyes. And we do a lot of like long distance, just cast to the abyss. They, mm-hmm. they do not break in the middle as readily as a lead eye does. So after a while. Oh, absolutely. You, yeah. Pounding rocks. And just mm-hmm, even the, mm-hmm. a really hard angler casting a distance, you know, after about three hours, that fly, if you don't lose it, will break the eyes in half with a lead. With oh, absolutely. Tungsten. Yeah. Yeah. So the tungsten is just a little more durable. So, yeah, that's some great intel on the flies. Let me ask you one last question before we start wrapping things up. You know, you're, you're a musician, you play drums. Um, <laughs> does it make you more of a creative? angler as far as on the water or tie and i can see it already when you you designed a you know a jordan fly series so i i can see the creativity <laughs> but maybe uh you know does it really i can tell you're really artsy man i've always it's just part of my thing i mean growing up uh dyslexic my brain is uh the right side of my brain drives the ship you know um and that's how i've always been and and it's a it's a gift you know it, it's a thing that you know you have to learn how you learn and i'm a visual learner i'm a visual person person i've always been into art my dad actually made a living as an artist for a time and uh and so fishing fly fishing especially the one of the reasons why i took to it so um strongly was it was an extension of that creativity it's just as music was as i always drew as a kid and um was into i thought i was going to be an artist at some point um music found me in my teenage years you know and and i've always stuck with it it's been an outlet to pursue that that scratch that itch and i've played in bands for for years and years and years and as long as I can remember, really. And uh, and it just keeps me young. Fishing, I think the question was, does does being a musician help with fishing? Or does, uh, what, was your, what, was, what was the specific question? Well, you're just it's a creative an extension. person. It's, an ex- it's like you're a creative person. So like just the way you explained your flies, like mm-hmm. how you're creating, not one is, not one is the same. Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's, that's the musician part. Like you're- It's a all related. Yes. Where some mm. guys, like you said, it's like, I got three flies. You're going to put these on. We're fishing all day because they work. That's it. Mm. Where you're like, yeah. right? But that's way cool, man. One last thing is um, I always like to touch base. Is there anything conservation-wise that's within your geographic grasp that you think people need to shout out about or something you're concerned about? Or is it all fairly okay? Or what's your, what's your thoughts on that, man? I think one of the things that I've noticed uh, that that I've I've actually been a little bit um, upset with myself with because in the early days when we were fishing for drum, I didn't know how much handling a drum could actually hurt a drum, and uh, and I have, I've seen a lot of the same fish over the years on on the flats, and uh, and I think one of the things that I really try to do um, is uh, is really focus on how I handle fish. And, and do it in a way that where 
you're not affecting their skin. You're not keeping them out of the water. If they flop, have an exit strategy to where they don't flop into the boat and start bouncing around. I've seen drum that have a skin sort of that, that seems like they've been handled a little bit. And I'm not sure if that's me. I'm not sure if it's, it's you know, I've seen all kinds of funky looking fish out there. Um, but I really, uh, I try to pr- practice a style of, of handling fish that really um, promotes less you know um although it's nice to get those shots and and most of the fish are rough fish both in our perfect example of fish you can hold out of water and obviously we we get those shots of the drum too but we do it in a way that i i want to set it up to where the you know the hooks in the mouth if that fish flops you're throwing it in the water and once we're done with the picture you throw it in the water and then i release the I, i i take the hook out in the water um we keep that fish you know uh as 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 uh wet as we can and uh, using a bigger net, obviously, that allows me to net the fish. I have my basket's big enough where I can just rest it on my boat. That fish is in the water, breathing in the net still. It's not, you know, it's not out of the water. But with a smaller net, which was what I fished with for the first probably four years of being out there, now I have this big net, which I, um, which is upping that game and, and pursuing um, just a more conservative or conservation minded approach to these fish and treating them as good as we can. Cause we do beat up on them, you know, and over time that, that toll, it has to be there. I mean, it's going to be there. So, you know, we want them to be around. We want to be as healthy as possible. We see a lot of trash. Um, and, uh, and that's something that has been mentioned. I'd like to do some, flats you know clean up um and you know i try to keep my uh my footprint as minimal as possible and uh and if i see something you know obviously um if i can put it in my boat and haul it off get it to the trash can where it should be i can but there's some giant trash out there there's you know everything from lawnmowers to you know god knows what that'd be a little bit more of a project that's awesome dave that's great intel with everything i that's just being, you know, taking care of our own little ecosystems and our water systems is super important. If we, mm-hmm. if I see a glittery balloon four miles away, you know, that mm-hmm. came from some birthday party, we're making a beeline to the birthday balloon, even though it's not where, you know, we're going to go fishing, we go pick it up. So we're in the yeah. same boat as you protect our own waters, you know, but I really got to thank you, man. All this intel you're willing to share with us on this, this episode anybody can reach out to you feel free to reach out to dave but uh want to thank all the listeners to listen to this great lakes podcast episode and the next time you know you think about a fishing trip you know you might want to explore some cool waters like dave and myself in the backcountry or somewhere different on the great lakes if you have any questions you know reach out to dave right dave at the podcast or connect with me at greatlakesflyfishing.com or on instagram at great lakes dude or Hit up Dave Hurley himself on Instagram. I think that's the best way, right, Dave? Yeah, I believe it's Dave Hurl is the the, the handle, but absolutely, yeah. Okay, that Mm -hmm. sounds good. Sorry Mm -hmm. for that. But thanks again, and thanks, everybody, for the listen, man. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it, man. That was Jeff Liskay on the Great Lakes Podcast, part of the Wet Fly Swing Podcast and Swing Outdoors. Big thanks to uh, Jeff this week and uh, for putting this together and for his special guest, Stay tuned as we're going to uh, be knocking another one out of the park next week. And, uh, and I don't know if it's going to be an interview. I'm going to leave that up to Jeff to decide. And, uh, and we're going to, 
I think we're going to be getting rid of my outro and intro as well. It's going to be all Jeff uh, from here on out. So glad you had a chance to stop in and I'm excited to let Jeff uh, fully take the reins here and, uh, and keep this thing rolling. You can send any feedback to uh, myself or Jeff at any time. We're out here, uh, social media um, or email, easy to do it. And uh, we would love to hear from you. One quick reminder, uh, we've got the Steelhead School coming back and we're going to be heading back out to uh, Lake Erie, south shores of Lake Erie with Jeff and, uh, and Rick Custich this year. So if you want to check in on that, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash steelheadschool right now and you can sign up there and check it out. We should have a few spots still remaining. Uh, if you're lucky here, I know this one is definitely a hot ticket. So I'd love to see you on the water and, uh, and get out there with Jeff and, uh, and Rick and all the great guides this year and some folks from the podcast. Can't wait to get on the water again and hear Jeff's next podcast from the Great Lakes Dude. We are out of here. Thanks again for listening. We will see you soon.